One of the things I get to do as a campus minister, one of my jobs underneath all the other jobs as a campus minister is I'm also a fundraiser. And it's actually something I've grown to enjoy as a part of what I do. You know, we RUF exists because of generous donors all across the country who support our work, churches and individuals and families and graduates support RUF. And we, uh, it's one of the big things, like everything we do in RUF, we do because of donors. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up um, is because when you're fundraising, if you've ever done any fundraising or you've done any studying about it, uh, one of the biggest things is, so the hard part is not like figuring out who you're going to talk to about supporting your organization or ministry. It's not coming up with a list. It's not making um, a letter and, or following up with a phone call. It's, it's not even the sitting down and talking about your ministry organization. It's that pivotal moment where you kind of present the information and you put it on the table and then you have to make the ask. That's what the professionals call it. It's that moment where you've given the info and now you have to make the ask. You have to say, and for these reasons... I'm asking you to partner with us in whatever. The ask is really important. This passage, this part of the passage, this part of the letter, is where Paul begins to make the ask. He has stated his reasons, and his reasons are good reasons, because when you're making the ask in fundraising, it has to be clear, it has to be bold, and it has to be grounded in something. And Paul is making the ask, and it is bold And it is clear and it's grounded in love. And so this is the passage that we're reading tonight. Philemon, we're going to read verses 8 through 17. And I hope you see where he makes the ask. Here we go. I'm going to actually go back uh, on the outline. I love starting in that great verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you and sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this reason is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave. But more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord and they will stand forever. Uh, Would you pray with me? God, we do ask for your help as we consider this passage, as we consider uh, this great request uh, that's recorded for us in history and has such significance even for our lives today. I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, that you would give us attention, that you would give us focus, that you would give us a heart to receive the message um, that you uh, are teaching us through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. All right, truth be told, we don't know exactly what dinosaurs look like. I don't know if you realize that. I'm just going to be honest with you about that. We don't know. 
That was really funny when I wrote it. <laughs> when we picture dinosaurs, we picture sort of the slimy green, scaly things. We picture whatever people have drawn for us over the course of time as paleontologists have put together what dinosaurs may look like, but may have looked like. But it's the paleo artist, it's the paleo illustrators, which sounds like an amazing job, who actually put together what dinosaurs most likely look like. And I've been reading on this a little, and they've changed their trends based on studies what they think dinosaurs look like. Like the stuff that I grew up learning is different than the stuff that they're teaching kids to now uh, these days. Like they're they're adding feathers to the drawings in ways that they didn't used to have, have feathers. So picture like, I don't know, peacock feathers on the side of a T-Rex. Not exactly that, but something like that. Um, or or um, stripes, like zebra stripes on a Stegiosaurus. Is that a thing? Stegio? I don't know. Something like that. So picture zebra stripes. Regardless, like, we don't exactly know. We're kind of working our way backwards to figure out what they look like. Okay, here's... What does that have to do with anything? Um, We don't exactly know uh, what the dinosaur behind this letter looked like. We've really left it up to theologians and, and historians to put together what we think really happened behind the scenes. So we have this story about Philemon and Onesimus, but we don't have the, the, another recorded history of exactly what happened to the backstory. Uh, we've put together what we think has happened um, as far as the backstory goes. What we think is that Philemon uh, was clearly a, a slave owner. There's a lot of this that we know from this, these passages. Uh, he was a slave owner and he had all these people who worked for him in his, um, in his home. And one of these slaves was a guy named Onesimus, and he ran away. Now, it seems that he stole from Philemon before he ran away. That's based on a couple of things Paul says in the letter. And for a time, he was gone, and he was off in Rome, and Philemon was converted to Christ. He met Jesus through the apostle Paul. Sometime after all of this, Onesimus, while he's on the run, meets the apostle Paul. Maybe he even sought him out when he was in Rome. And he also comes to faith in Christ. Again, we're reskinning the dinosaur here. Here's what we think has happened. And so Paul is now sending back Onesimus after he becomes a Christian to Philemon's house with this letter in his hand with a request. Paul's request to Philemon to receive him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. This is it's an amazing story with an amazing request that talks about the transforming power of the gospel both in terms of an individual's lives, in a community, and an entire culture. And that's sort of what I want to trend our way through tonight. How the gospel transforms citizens, how the gospel transforms communities, and how the gospel even transforms cultures. So one thing that is clear as we look back at the bones of this letter is that Onesimus is a new man. He's a new man. He's different than he was before. Or to put it as the Apostle Paul does in another place, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. This is Onesimus. He's a new creation because he's encountered the risen Christ. This is what Paul means when he says, I became his father when I was in prison. He's talking about being a spiritual father when Onesimus came to him when Paul was in prison. So verse 11 is is really an interesting phrase. The one that's in parentheses there, it's a a play on words in the Greek. Paul says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Onesimus was a very common slave name. Very, very common. 
Because it means profitable. That's what the name means. So Onesimus' name means profitable. Now look at what Paul just said. He used to be useless to you. He was not profitable. Because he took your money. He ran away. But now he is useful to you. He's profitable. And to you and to me. But not as a slave. It's, he's kind of joking. I picture Paul laughing a little bit when he wrote that line. Kind of like I did when I wrote the dinosaur line. I picture him laughing a little bit. And so before Paul makes the ask, he, he's sowing the seeds of motivation behind the appeal. He's sort of buttering Philemon up. In the text, up until now, he's really talked up Philemon's love about his generosity and his kindness and his welcoming nature to the people who are in the church and his home. He's told Philemon about how he's heard about his love for the believers. And so now the question will be, will you love this one too? You've loved the others really well, Philemon. How about this one? In other words, hey, Philemon, Onesimus Onesimus has been transformed. What about you? How will you receive him? And I think this is a question that's really posed to to all of us citizens of the kingdom. Has the gospel of Jesus really changed you? Are you a new creation? Does your life show that to be true? Our oldest daughter, Lucy, just went through the communicants class uh, at our church where basically it's a it's a Sunday school session that lasts for a few weeks where they sort of go through what it means to join the church uh, for kids. And they, they talk about some of the theology and the beliefs of the church. They talk about membership and what some of that looks like. And, and they give us all of this homework, like a lot of homework for us to, to do with our uh, daughter at home. Which homework from school was one thing. Homework from church, she was not into that a whole lot. Uh, It was like pulling teeth. But it created some really good conversations. And one of the questions on one of the homework sheets last week was this question. I thought it was so good. It said, what changes in your life have you seen because Jesus is your Savior? That's a good question. What changes in your life have you seen because Jesus is your Savior? I wonder how you would respond In other words, the question is, have you been transformed? Do you see any area of your life that's different because you know Jesus? Does your relationship with Christ change the way that you view your schoolwork if you're a Christian? Your relationships. Does it affect the way that you relate to alcohol or sexuality? Does it affect the way that you think about justice in the world or family life or work life or things like forgiveness? If it doesn't, then maybe you haven't yet met him because the gospel transforms individuals and it has to affect the way that we think about ourselves, him and the world around us. There's a change. The old is gone. The new has come. Anyone in Christ is a new creation. So what Paul is saying is Onesimus has been transformed. Philemon, how about you? And it's in the context of that truth that Paul begins to finally make the ask. He gives, a, he gives him the why before he gives him the what. That's the why. Now comes the what. What is the what? Verse 15, receive Onesimus. No longer as a slave, but as a brother. What Paul is calling for, and we have to see this. What Paul is calling for here is nothing short of a gospel transformation of an entire community. This is a huge ask. A big request. 
So this brings us to this important issue. We're going to talk about this for a minute. On the issue of slavery in the Bible. Hot topic, very difficult. Um, I've been trying to read and study and think through what I want to communicate to you. And part of the burden that I felt as I've thought about this is uh, the reality is it's nearly impossible uh, to talk about the Bible and slavery without associating it with the horrible race-based slavery uh, in our own country's history. Okay? Up until after the Civil War, when the colonists of our country enslaved mostly black men and women and treated them as subhuman tools uh, that they could buy and sell and abuse and even kill if it came down to it. And so when we see the word slave, of course, that's what comes to mind because of our own country and cultural context. And so for that reason, actually, a lot of translators have changed the word in your English translations uh, and, and will remove oftentimes the word slave from English translations and use the word bondservant. And some of your translations say bondservant instead of slave because they understand that we are associating kind of the American system of slavery with with the, the Bible's context of what was happening in that day. So I, I want to like draw some distinctions about that, and hopefully this will be helpful um, to separate that idea. We obviously don't have time to give like a full detailed study, but let me just give you three, I think, key points about slavery and Bible times. And if you're interested in studying this more, I'll give you, point out two resources. You can just Google these. Um, Paul Copan, C-O-P-A-N. He's like, he's the expert on this, Paul Copan. He's written a book called Is God a Moral Monster? Where he talks about a lot of difficult things in the Bible, including slavery, uh, Old Testament, New Testament. There's an article, though, you can read um, very easily online. Just Google his name and slavery in the Bible. It'll come up. And another one is Sam Storms. Sam Storms has written another very approachable, applicable article. Three things, mostly coming from those guys and others. Number one, slavery in the ancient world had nothing to do with race. It's a key difference. The color of someone's skin was irrelevant when it came to slavery in the first century. Um, bond servants primarily came, as you may know this through studying history, through military conquests, right? Or economic indebtedness. Conquered individuals could be enslaved for a time before they were given freedom. And often they were given freedom. Those who incurred massive debt could sell themselves into slavery until they could pay back the debt they owed. So that's number one. Number two is often slaves in Bible times were actually well treated. I know that sounds like a weird sentence, but slaves in that context and many contexts were were actually well treated. There were exceptions of brutality, but it was not the norm as it was in our country. Our own personal history in our country of slavery is reprehensible, of course. But many of the bond servants in this day were educated. They were trained. They were even paid for their services. They could purchase their own freedom or eventually work their way out of their position. So that's another key difference. And the third is this. Slavery, especially in the Old Testament Israel, that could be its own study. Um, But let me just say that many of the laws that God gave to Israel were laws given to actually protect slaves in their land and to treat individuals as human beings endowed with dignity by their creator. There were strict laws against man-stealing and trafficking and beating and raping and mistreating slaves. All throughout the Old Testament, you'll find these laws for God's people. In other words, 
As the Bible speaks to a context of people living in specific times and specific places, God is instructing them how to live as his people in that time and place. Paul then here is writing to Christians who were living within this system. This is not God's system. This is a Roman system. And he's writing to Christians living in that system, particularly addressing how both the master and the slave should treat one another because of their common union in Christ. Which is why Paul's ask comes as a huge sort of surprise in that context when he says, Slave master Philemon, receive your former runaway slave Onesimus, no longer as a servant, but as a brother in the Lord. If you're with us last week, we talked about the koinonia key, which is this idea that there's a deep commonality among Christians, a oneness that we all share in Christ. And that oneness must lead to love and action. Paul is calling Philemon to a revolutionary love. To lay down his pride and to lean into radical reconciliation with someone that the world would never expect for him to be reconciled with. The gospel is transforming the community of this church here in Colossae, and it's calling for reconciliation that will blow the watching world away. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says that the only... Well, it says that we are all sinners deeply in need of reconciliation, first with God... And then to one another, we're all image bearers of God deserving to be treated with love and respect and kindness and dignity. And all that was missing in the Roman context. And so for fellow Christians, because of the gospel of reconciliation, there should be no irreconcilable differences between two parties. Because our first problem is that we're not reconciled to God. But if we become reconciled to God, then it affects the way that we're reconciled to each other. And let me let me just give a passage that I think makes this point. Um, Paul talks about this in Second Corinthians five. In that passage where he says, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you hear it? He reconciled us to God and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The point is the gospel of Jesus says that the only natural irreconcilable parties are God and man, a holy God and sinful man. But God himself bridged that gap in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He bridged the gap. So the point is, if Jesus settled our irreconcilable differences on the cross, how much more should we move towards settling what seems like irreconcilable differences among brothers and sisters in Christ? That's the point that Paul's getting at. He's saying, Philemon, y'all are brothers. Y'all are brothers now, and that changes everything. I've mentioned before uh, how much I love the show This Is Us. The show's fantastic. It's, uh, it's let me down a little bit this year, but, you know, it's a good show. 
great writing. There's this scene early on in the show where Randall and Kevin are, are two of the triplets, this, these two brothers, Randall and Kevin. And, and they have this kind of um, sibling rivalry that everyone has. And there's this point where they're arguing about who's the favorite in the family. And this is when they're grown men. Like they're 35 years old and they're arguing about who's the favorite son in the family. And they're actually in the scene, they're on the streets of New York. There's all these people around. And so they start yelling at each other, all these things from their past. You ever been in that situation? And they start yelling at these, each other. And then that yelling kind of becomes like, get your hand off my shoulder. And then they start pushing each other. And then they just fall on the ground and they start wrestling with each other on the ground. And uh, it looks like this kind of all-out fight. Now, this crowd begins to gather around them because it's just such a scene. And Kevin is, is famous in the show. He's an actor. And people recognize him. And they're like, hey, it's Kevin. Kevin, are you okay? And they thought Randall was hurting him. They thought he was being attacked. And Kevin, they just both stop in the middle of this fight. And they look up at these people. And they're sweating and panting. And Kevin goes, yeah, it's cool. It's just my brother. And then they, like, get up and walk away together. And I love the picture of that because you know what that feels like, right? If you've got a sibling, it's different than fighting with someone you don't know. And you're fighting it out. You're hashing through it. And then in the middle of it, you're kind of like, it's okay because they're my brother. Like we can work through this. That's the idea, right? I think what Paul is getting at here with Philemon is whatever's going on between y'all, it's okay because he's your brother. The score has been settled in Christ. It's time for us to work through some of these differences. Have you ever had a good fight with a brother or sister? Maybe a brother or sister in Christ. Are you in the middle of a fight? May not be a good one. Even right now. Do you feel like there are people that you have irreconcilable differences with? Paul says there should be no such thing. So I think it brings up two really primary questions, two very basic questions that we all need to be able to answer. Number one is, have you been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? And if the answer to that is yes, then it really informs the second question. Are there brothers and sisters in Christ that you need to be reconciled with? Now, let me just say this as a note. Forgiveness and reconciliation aren't the same thing. Um, I'm going to deal with forgiveness actually next week. But for now, we're on reconciliation. Reconciliation means to bring together parties that are separated to be in harmony with one another again. Though there may be differences, it's a confession and a conviction that they are still one in Christ. And so Paul is calling for this radical reconciliation in the church between two parties who have been separated in the broader society, but they cannot be divided in the church. The church has to be a place where there is no longer division between, as Paul puts it in another place, male or female, slave or free. We could add to that American or Asian or European, African, black or white. Republican or Democrat, engineer or artist. I've even heard of a church in South Carolina where both Gamecocks and and Clemson fans worship together. It's weird. But even that sort of thing, I know, it's amazing, right? The gospel transforms communities. 
But it doesn't just stop at communities. The gospel actually transforms entire societies over time. And I'm going to end with this idea. I want to raise a question that some of you may be thinking um, regarding this whole bond servant thing and the Christian. Why would Paul not go ahead and condemn slavery when he had the chance? I don't know if you felt that. I don't know if you thought that as you studied the New Testament. Why did he not say, and by the way, Philemon, let him go and everybody else too? In other words, why, or let me say it this way, since Paul didn't seem to condemn slavery, does that mean that he and the entire New Testament actually endorse it? Now, that's a big question and one that people have wrestled with and one that the church got really wrong throughout some really dark years in our own country. Really wrong. The short answer is no. The New Testament does not endorse slavery. In reality, it sows the seeds to overturn such systems. It calls for radical revolution of interpersonal relationships and institutional systems that say one person is more important than another person. I think what Paul is doing here is he's playing the long game. To use a horticultural illustration, there are two ways that you can change the landscape of a particular place. You can bulldoze everything or you can plant seeds. And I think what Paul is doing is he's planting seeds of transformation that will in the end lead to these oppressive systems crashing and burning including slavery in different parts of the world. And this has been true in history. Wilberforce's campaign in Europe was based on the teachings of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. The freedom delivered through Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in our own country grew out of the freedoms embedded in the dignity that all men are created in the image of God. Also, scholars suggest that Paul was hesitant in calling for immediate overthrowing of these systems because of what would happen to the many Christians and slave owners, Christian slave owners in those contexts, the uprising that it would create within Rome, where up to, I've read, 80 to 90 percent of Rome's population was enslaved. So imagine if all of the Christians, and there were few of them at this point, just said, it's, we're done with it. It's over. Paul Copan says that Rome would have quashed flagrant opposition with speedy and lethal force. So remember, Paul is sowing seeds that will change the landscape of the world forever, not just in the slavery context, but in so many others, too, where reconciliation is so desperately needed. And I think particularly reconciliation between Christians who are so easily divided over theological matters or cultural issues over race or ethnic or geographical or socioeconomic distinctions. Let me quote Copan one more time. He says, this, this is great. He says, early Christians undermined slavery indirectly, rejecting many Greco-Roman assumptions about it and acknowledging the intrinsic equal worth of slaves. Since the New Testament leveled all distinctions at the foot of the cross, the Christian faith being countercultural, revolutionary, and anti-status quo was actually particularly attractive to slaves and to those in lower classes. Thus, here's his illustration, like yeast, Christ-like living can have a gradual leavening effect on society so oppressive institutions like slavery could finally fall away forever. It's a great point and worth considering. So what does it mean for us today?
How does the gospel bring transformation even to our own culture, even into our own community, even to this campus? Does the gospel have anything to say about maybe something that can be transformed among people on this campus? I hope that seeds are being planted in your mind already to actually continue to fight to set captives free in our own day. Uh, Those who may be captive to sin. Slaves to self-righteousness, those who are stuck in abusive or threatening or broken relationships, addicts, or maybe other things that God brings to mind. And, and further, maybe there's a very specific application for you with a brother or sister in Christ, maybe even somebody in this room that you've been divided with for way too long, or a parent or a sibling that you need to move toward reconciliation with. Now, that is not an easy path. It's not an easy path that involves sometimes very difficult conversations. And Paul, I think, is clear about that. But it is a worthwhile one and one that honors Jesus deeply and one that can transform your life completely. But never forget our reconciliation with one another is deeply rooted in our reconciliation to God first through Christ. Because we were all, picture this, we were all, if you're a Christian, slaves to sin. And we have been brought back, purchased by the blood of Jesus, now set free and called into this ministry of reconciliation. He's brought us out of bondage and has received us as brothers into the kingdom of God. That's the reconciliation that starts all the others. I'll end with this quick story. Uh, Reverend Dr. Charles Albert Tindley was an African-American Methodist preacher and hymn writer in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was born into a slave family in an area of Maryland called Ganesa. And after the Civil War, he moved to Philadelphia for a new life of freedom. He actually educated himself as a young boy and studied, uh, ended up studying theology for a while. And when he was free, he became a preacher and a hymn writer. He wrote great hymns, including one of my favorites called Beams of Heaven. Um, I recently read this little biography written by his son where he tells the story of these revivals that Timley used to hold for poor people in their community. So he would bring together poor people in that community and provide for them warm food and shelter for a time and um, clothing. And they would have uh, preaching and worship. And at the end of one of these meetings, um, Reverend Timley uh, had people come forward. And there was this young white man in his 20s who came forward. He asked him his name. And he thought it sounded familiar. And so he asked him where he was from. And this young man said he's from Maryland. And he said, what part of Maryland? And he said, Ganesa. And Reverend Timley turned the boy toward the congregation and he put his arm around him. And he said, friends, you are now looking into the face of the grandson of the man who was my owner in slavery. And then he turned toward the young boy and he said, young man, God moves in a mysterious way. And he said, you're now among friends. He was now with his new family, the body of Christ. That's what the gospel can do to relationships. It transforms individual citizens. It transforms communities and it transforms entire societies. And this is a ministry. If you're a Christian the ministry of reconciliation that we've all been called into. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Would you pray with me?